This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Good morning or good afternoon. Um, my name is Larry Rosenthal. I'm the director of the Berkeley Center of right, for Right-Wing Studies, and I want to welcome you all to today's event, which is Abortion Rights in 2020 and Beyond Threats and Resistance. Um, I, I do have the, feel, the feeling of before we get started on today's event, I want to um, announce an upcoming event uh, in the, for, that the center is doing. And it's a panel discussion on my new book, which is Empire of Resentment, Populism's Toxic Embrace of Nationalism. Um, the, the event will be on Thursday, November 19th, uh, at noon Pacific time, and um, there's a link in the chat for the details on that. I also want to thank uh, our co-sponsors uh, for today's event. They, these include the Center on Reproductive Rights and Justice, the Center for the Study of Law and Society, and Berkeley Law's chapter of uh, If, When, How, Lawyering, for reproductive justice. I would like to add that, as many of you know, the Center for Right-Wing Studies is part of the UC Berkeley's Institute for the Study of Societal Issues. People call it ISSI a lot. Um, the Vice Chancellor of Research at the university has decided to close ISSI in, uh, in about nine months. We're not sure what this means for the center. And we, we uh, the Center for Right-Wing Studies, may be able to move to another institute on campus and, and remain functioning. I, I feel, and many people um, have joined me, on the, uh, I am part of, of a large number of people who have been, um, uh, who have known ISSI over the years. We believe that closing ISSI will be a great loss, not only to the center, but for the campus and beyond. And, and for those who, are, um, uh, 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 who, who would feel appropriate to do so, I would ask you to join me in protesting that decision. Um, you can find information available about that at Justice Futures socialjusticefutures.org, one word, socialjusticefutures.org, and that link you'll find in the chat as well. Okay, um, the format for today's event is that in the first half of the event, each of our three speakers, Kiara Bridges, Carol Joffe, and Jill Adams, will share some prepared remarks. 
I'll introduce each one of them before they speak. Um, then we will have a Q&A. Uh, and if you have a question, please use the Q&A feature on Zoom and I will ask those questions on your behalf. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Kiara Bridges. She is professor of law at UC Berkeley. Uh, her publications are many. Uh, just to, uh, to mention two books that are especially relevant here, Reproducing Race and Ethnography of Pregnancy as a Site of Racialization and The Poverty of Privacy Rights, published in 2017. With that, welcome, Kara. Thank you so much. It's a, a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm glad that we are doing this event. It is disturbingly timely. <laughs> um, so my remarks are going to focus on the intersection of race and abortion. Um, so the undeniable reality is that Black people, Black people with the capacity for pregnancy, disproportionately turn to abortion services. Um, that, that is, Black people are overrepresented among those who terminate pregnancies. So take Louisiana, for example. Um, although Black people constitute only a third of Louisiana's population, Black women made up 61% of abortion patients in the state in 2018. States committed to eliminating um, abortion access have put the fact of Black people's disproportionate reliance on abortion care to anti-choice ends. Race-selective abortion bans, which are on the books in several states, uh, prohibit doctors from performing an abortion when the pregnant person is terminating her pregnancy because of the fetus's race. The purported motivation behind race-selective abortion bans is Black people's overrepresentation among those who acquire abortions. Legislators who have supported these bans have said that they are concerned that Black people's disproportionate reliance on abortion care evidences a eugenic plot to decimate the Black race. In essence, legislators have used the demographics of those who turn to abortion services to support criminalizing abortion. In Box versus Planned Parenthood, um, the court declined to review the constitutionality of Indiana's ban on race, sex, and disability selective abortion. While Justice Clarence Thomas concurred in the court's decision to deny certiorari, he used the occasion to recount the close relationship that Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, once had with the eugenics movement. The thrust of his intervention is to argue that the disproportionate numbers of Black people who rely on abortion care reveals that Sanger's genocidal plot to annihilate the Black race is working. Perhaps intentionally, Thomas misses the actual significance of Black people's disproportionate reliance on abortion care. The reality is that Black women in Louisiana and across the country are living within breathtakingly constrained social conditions. They are poor, they are uninsured, they have little to no access to contraception, they have attended schools that have failed to provide them with factual information about pregnancy and how to prevent it. They face violence in a multiplicity of forms. For Black women, then, abortion is a tool that helps them navigate poverty, violence, vulnerability, and the state's abdication of its basic responsibilities to its citizens. To suggest that abortion today recalls the eugenic practices of yesteryear is to disregard the concept of self-government. Eugenics was about coercion. Abortion in Louisiana and elsewhere in the 21st century is a product of a choice. 
Black women are choosing a form of healthcare that helps them negotiate the profound constraints that limit the fullness of their lives. In fact, denying abortion access to Black women in Louisiana is most akin to the eugenic practices of the early 20th century. Abortion restrictions and eugenic sterilization both deny individuals the ability to control the direction that their reproductive lives will take. As eugenicists sought to dictate the direction of women's reproductive capacities, proponents of abortion restrictions seek to dictate the direction of women's reproductive capacities. Now, it may be tempting to describe the statistics documenting Black people's disproportionate reliance on abortion care in Louisiana and elsewhere in terms of autonomy and agency. It may be especially tempting to do this when we endeavor to distinguish the receipt of abortion in modern times from the eugenics movement of yesteryear. We may want to propose that while eugenicists in pursuit of a more perfect society insisted upon curtailing individual autonomy and agency in matters involving reproduction, while people today who are having abortions are engaged in a different exercise, they are acting autonomously and with agency when they decide to terminate a pregnancy. Right? We may look to statistics um, documenting Black people's disproportionate reliance on abortion care and insist that they simply describe Black people's autonomous and agential acts. Now, while autonomy and agency may be important elements to this story, it is important not to be too sanguine about how freely Black people are electing to terminate pregnancies in Louisiana and across the nation. As described, as I, as I said um, earlier, Black women decide to terminate their pregnancies within profound social constraints, within poverty, with a dearth of reproductive health care, while lacking information about contraception and the medical facts of sex and pregnancy amid violence. Indeed, it is those constraints that oftentimes lead people to have unintended pregnancies in the first instance. So we wrongly ally the profundity of the structural violence under which Black women live if we say that their choices around abortion are a product of their autonomy and agency. So the danger is that the language of autonomy and agency may suggest that we ought to celebrate the fact that tens of thousands of Black women are undergoing abortions across the nation at rates that far outstrip their non-Black counterparts. The truth, however, is that the number of Black women getting abortions across the nation is not a cause for celebration. Those numbers are not triumphs. Instead, those numbers reflect profound marginalization. This, of course, is a controversial argument to make. It is controversial because it problematizes Black people's abortion rates. And any argument that problematizes abortion in any way could easily be, be misheard as claiming that at the end of the day, abortion is wrong. Any argument that problematizes abortion could be easily misheard as saying that abortion is a bad act. And if it is a bad act, those of us who nevertheless support abortion have to offer that abortion is necessary, is necessary because it is a necessary evil, though. It is a tragic thing, right, we have to argue, that we have to tolerate. But the argument that I am making here is controversial because it could be misunderstood as suggesting that we ought to be disturbed by these rates um, because they reveal that Black women are being forced to commit tragic, necessary evils more frequently than non-Black women. But that is not at all what I'm arguing here. It's that I'm asking us to conceptualize Black women's need for abortion as a symptom of their vulnerability and marginalization. The higher rates at which Black women receive abortion relative to their non-Black counterparts reveal that they are more vulnerable and more marginalized than their non-Black counterparts. 
the language of autonomy and agency elides that fact. Which is to say, it is possible to believe that abortion is not a bad thing. It is possible to believe that there's nothing fundamentally immoral about abortion. It is possible to believe that abortion does not kill a tiny baby, that abortion does not end the existence of a morally significant entity, that abortion is not a shameful act, that people should exercise their abortion rights unapologetically, that people ought to feel good, indeed relieved, after terminating an unwanted pregnancy. It is possible to believe all those things while simultaneously believing that there is something wrong with the rates at which Black women undergo abortions. We can believe all those things about abortion while still understanding that there is an injustice and likely multiple injustices underlying Black women's abortion rates. We can believe all those things about abortion while simultaneously becoming enraged and being heartbroken by the rates at which Black women find it necessary to terminate pregnancies. The short of it is that abortion for subordinated Black women is a product of oppressive conditions. Marginalized Black women understand the social, economic, political, and interpersonal constraints under which they operate, constraints that likely, again, contributed to their having an unintended pregnancy in the first place, and they understand those constraints, and they conclude that it is best not to carry the pregnancy to term. And the problem is that the language of autonomy and agency obscures the fact of these oppressive conditions. If marginalized Black women are engaging in acts of autonomy when they terminate a pregnancy, that self-governing, that autonomous act occurs within a context that has stripped the actor of her ability to govern the course and content of her life. If marginalized Black women are acting with agency when they have an abortion, that agential act is made necessary by the lack of agency that they have in other areas of their lives. So to be plain, understanding Black women's reliance on abortion as exercises of autonomy and agency conceals that their need to turn to abortion is due to racism. <laughs> Black women's abortion rates reflect racism, not because nefarious actors with genocide on their minds are duping Black women into terminating their pregnancies, nor do Black women's abortion rates reflect racism because abortion clinics are targeting Black women and Black communities for abortion care. Black women's abortion rates reflect racism because structural racism has led Black people to face higher rates of unintended and unwanted pregnancies. Structural racism has led people of color to bear a disproportionate share of poverty, leading them to have to rely on government programs and public benefits for their economic and physical survival. Further, structural racism has taken the form of an incompetent social safety net that fails to provide basic necessities, including contraception and health insurance to those who cannot acquire it in the market. Structural racism has taken the form of a policy choice not to educate students in public schools about the medical facts of sex and pregnancy, even though the known consequences of failing to provide that education is high rates of unwanted and unintended pregnancy. The above underscores uh, what I've said has underscored the need to refuse to resort to describing abortion as a necessary evil. Such a framing concedes that abortion is evil, which is a concession that fundamentally misaligns with most people's experience of terminating an unwanted pregnancy. For poor Black people in Louisiana and across this country, abortion is necessary because of the evils of structural racism. So to conclude, um, the abstract language that we have always used to describe the stakes of abortion, language like autonomy, agency, choice, liberty, et cetera, all of that language might be inadequate to describe what happens when abortion rights and abortion interface with racial inequality. Okay. <laughs>
Thank you, Karen. That was extraordinary. Um, I would, I would, at this point, I'd like to introduce Carol Jaffe, which is a great pleasure as Carol has been uh, affiliated with the center since its inception. Um, and this is not the first time she has presented. Um, Carol is professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences at UC San Francisco. She is also Professor Emerita of Sociology at UC Davis. She's the author of Dispatches from the Abortion Wars, published in 2010, and is the co-author of, oops, there we go, Obstacle Course, <laughs> uh, The Everyday Struggle to Get an Abortion in America, which came out this year and frequently can be a harrowing read. Um, and with that, welcome Carol Jaffe. Thank you, Larry. And, and thank you, Larry and Deborah, for making this thing possible. Uh, the Center for Right-Wing Studies is my absolutely favorite entity on the Berkeley campus, and it, it's really always an honor to do programs with you. And thank you, Kiara, for really a, a breathtaking talk. So um, much has changed since Larry and I first started talking about a program like this some months ago. Since we had our initial conversations, we've had a pandemic, we've had the tragic death of RBG, we've had the <laughs> tragic nomination of Amy uh, Connie Barrett. So the beleaguered world of abortion care has gotten even more chaotic and uncertain in the last few months. Uh, but even before these developments, uh, for many people uh, in, in this society, particularly uh, the very poor, um, disproportionately women of color uh, that Kiara referenced, uh, e even before these most recent events, getting an abortion has been very difficult, hence the title of our book, uh, Obstacle Course. But, but I do want to make something clear. Um, as Larry said, our book is sort of a downer. I mean, it is harrowing, showing how hard it is to get an abortion. But as long as abortion is still legal, I think it's really important to emphasize that because of the persistence and dedication of the women who need these abortions and the incredible dedication of those who work in abortion clinics, it's, I think it's fair to say that most people who want an abortion still get it. Um, uh, I'd like to divide my remarks to you today between first reading a, a passage from my book, which encapsulates, with, which encapsulates both how hard it is for some women to get an abortion in this country, and also what an incredibly important role volunteers play in this especially for the very poor women. And, and we, Kiara and I are both referencing the poverty. So just to give you some data, 50% of all abortion patients are below the federal poverty line. Another 25% are just above it. So we are really talking about a very poor uh, pool of patients. Um, and and when, we, when my co-author and I started this work, we knew that simply the ability to pay for an abortion uh, was a tremendous difficulty. That was not a surprise to us. What was a surprise to us, even though I've studied this field for 40-odd years, look at this gray head, um, 
uh, was simply how hard it is for many people to simply get there. I mean, forget about paying, just get finding a clinic, getting to a clinic, coming up with the money to stay overnight because so many states impose waiting periods. So let me read you a a section of our book um, that makes this clear. Uh, Pat Cannon, a woman in her late 60s who lives in the South, volunteers at her state's only abortion clinic to help patients who have trouble with transportation. While working the hotline for the clinic, Pat received a call from Keisha, an African-American woman of about 30 with two children. By the time she reached out to Pat, Keisha believed she was 20 weeks pregnant as her history of irregular periods delayed her discovery of the pregnancy. Working with a caseworker at a national organization, Pat was able to arrange funding for Keisha's procedure and agreed to pick her up and drive her to her appointment and then returned to her home afterwards. Since Keisha was scheduled for a two-day procedure and lived over an hour from the clinic, Pat also arranged a hotel room for her. That Keisha had to rely on volunteer driving and coordination from a stranger to get her to a medical appointment already put her care outside the normal bounds of medicine. But even this anomaly did not go as planned. Pat explained, quote, After picking her up at home, I signed her into the clinic and made arrangements to pick her up after the first day procedure and check her into the hotel. I was surprised to get a call from her after only about an hour to come pick her up. She was over their weight limit, her blood pressure was too high, and the ultrasound at the clinic put her at 23 weeks gestation, so she was turned away, end of quote. And let me remind you, one clinic in this state The local hospitals do not do abortions, uh, so she had to go elsewhere. While in the waiting room of the clinic, Pat immediately got on the phone with a caseworker from the national organization she had previously talked about with Keisha. The caseworker suggested that Keisha's best option would be a clinic in Washington, D.C., so Pat canceled her hotel room and started to drive back to Keisha's hometown. On the drive home, Pat reassured Keisha that she would help her figure out how to get to Washington. Quote, over the next week, I worked with a patient and multiple coordinators and caseworkers at the national organization to make the arrangements to get her appointment and funding in place for the Washington Clinic. The patient had to come up with additional money for the Washington Clinic as well. Funding was almost the least of Keisha's issues, though. Washington was over 500 miles away from Keisha's home. Pat considered various alternatives, such as flying Keisha, but finally settled on driving Keisha herself. Early on a late December morning, Pat picked Keisha up from her home and drove for 10 hours straight. Quote, neither of us talked much on the trip. She was feeling ill and slept most of the way. She was concerned about getting home in time to prepare Christmas presents for her children before they woke up Christmas morning. I told her I would get her home in time for Christmas, end of the quote. When Pat and Keisha arrived in Washington, Pat showed her some of the sights, since Keisha had never seen the White House or Supreme Court. They stayed in the hotel and went to the clinic the next morning, where Keisha was again turned away, again because of concerns about her high blood pressure, something the second clinic mistakenly had thought it could handle. Dejected, Pat and Keisha went to lunch to talk about her options and what she wanted to do. 
The National Organization's caseworker suggested Keisha try a third clinic, this one in New York City. As they finished their lunch, Keisha decided to give it one last try. So the two of them checked out of the hotel and got in the car for the four-hour drive to New York. Pat and Keisha arrived in New York that evening, about 36 hours after they left Keisha's home. Keisha had never been to New York, so Pat drove her through Times Square en on, on, on route to a hotel room near the clinic. The next morning, after several hours spent sorting out payment for the procedure, Keisha was finally seen. Her high blood pressure was compounded by other medical problems, but the clinic was able to start the abortion that day with a plan for her to return the next day to finish it. Once again, things did not go as planned. During the night, Keisha started having contractions and began to miscarry, as sometimes occurs with an abortion at this stage of pregnancy. Pat called the clinic's emergency number, and the on-duty nurse advised getting her to a hospital. Pat told us, quote, I called an ambulance. There were four EMT people and a hotel security guard who came to the room. She was in the bathroom and had difficulty moving. Finally, after about half an hour, they got her in a position that she could be transported to the hospital. I was able to ride in the ambulance with them, end of quote. The hospital staff quickly cared for Keisha's medical emergency. After the hotel released Keisha the next morning, Pat picked her up and immediately started the 12-hour drive back home. Quote, it was a hair-rising ride with storms, torrential downpours, and high-wind advisories. We made it to her home at one minute past midnight on Christmas Eve, so it was technically one minute into Christmas Day. I kept my promise to her, end of quote. And more importantly, through all the efforts of caseworkers, EMTs, abortion providers, and a hospital staff to treat Keisha's medical problems, Pat said, quote, I truly believed we saved a life that week. Uh, so for me, there's two take-homes from the story. You know, one, the extraordinary dedication of, of Pat. I mean, a woman in her late 60s willing to go on this kind of, you know, three-day odyssey. Uh, I mean, which I think speaks to the best of people. I mean, just the humanity to help a stranger. Um, someone she'd never met. The second take-home, however, is that COVID makes this kind of activity very um, problematic. Being in a car with someone for all these hours, sharing a hotel room with her, that's not going to happen um, during COVID. Uh, the other thing I want to say about this, this incident um, is, it, even, though the, even though it speaks to what I've said is, quote, the best of humanity, is this a way to do health care? What about the quiches of the world who, I mean, even, even bracketing COVID, what about the quiches of the world who live in a community where there doesn't happen to be a pet? I mean, this woman would, uh, who had all kinds of medical problems would not have gotten her abortion. The one clinic in her state could not do it. Um, so this is not a way, I mean, as, as admirable and as moving as the kind of dedication people like Pat show, this is not a way to do healthcare. Um, okay, I still have, I believe, um, Larry, seven minutes, eight minutes. Uh, anyway, whatever I have, I would like now to ask um, Deborah if you could show a slide, uh, my slide. 
thank you. Um, yes, this I'd like to share with you some research in progress. And Larry, please, I forgot to look exactly what time I started. Please feel free to cut me off. As, Don't worry. As the Don't old worry. expression goes, get the hook. Okay, so here, um, here are some of the challenges of COVID for abortion care. This summer, I've been talking uh, to abortion clinic directors across the country. And now, in some ways, they have the same problems that all healthcare uh, institutions have had. Uh, I mean, it's how do you do healthcare when you're terrified your staff will get sick, when, you're, when patients are terrified they'll get sick? It has not been easy for anybody. But abortion being, an abor abortion being abortion, there's always an extra element of difficulty. Um, so uh, some of you might remember, it's not on the slide, but some of you might remember that uh, as soon as COVID happened, a number of red state um, uh, governors <laughs> announced uh, abortion is not essential health care. We've got to shut down the clinics. Uh, abortion uses too much PPE, which is not true. Um, I, I spoke to a doctor in Texas who told me where where the, where it was like ping pong that you know the clinics are closed. No, never mind, they're open. No, they're closed. I, I spoke uh, to a doctor in Texas who told me we had patients in our clinic that morning. We were getting ready to give them their abortions. The phone rang. Our lawyer said, "Never mind, you can't do it." Ultimately. It was straightened out. Okay, so I'm not going to go through all these in, in the um, uh, because of time, but I do want to point you out to the second uh, point on the slide. Um, telemedicine obviously has been incredibly important uh, in healthcare in general, uh, but a number of states, uh, 17 states, do not allow telemedicine for abortion. Um, this is ridiculous. Uh, as one of the, um, as virtually all the clinic directors I spoke to said to me, we encourage medication abortion. Medication abortion, of course, is the form of abortion uh, where the patient takes two pills as opposed to having a procedure. Uh, obviously, this tremendously minimizes uh, personal contact uh, between provider and, um, and patient. So, um, a medication abortion has been incredibly important uh, during this pandemic. Uh, it's also brought to the fore, and perhaps later our, our lawyers can speak to this, um, that one of the medications used in, uh, in this regime is called mifepristone. Uh, mifepristone is incredibly safe. It's been used in this country for 20 years with an incredible safety record. However, again, because of abortion politics, it is... Uh, it is regulated under a very strict protocol from the FDA called the Risk Evaluation Management Strategies, known as the REMS, which means, uh, to cut to the chase, that it, it, unlike other medications, it can't be picked up at your local drugstore. Unlike other medications, it can't be mailed to you. Uh, the ACLU, on behalf of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and several other organizations, including, by the way, Sister Son. And it was very nice for me, uh, as an observer of this world, to see a, a group like Sister Son uh, join with ACOG in this kind of lawsuit. Anyway, uh, a judge in Maryland said, yes, during the pandemic, just as we are loosening the re restrictions on other drugs, yes, um, 
patients now can be mailed, mailed this medication. The Trump administration, without missing a beat, uh, has appealed to the Supreme Court. We don't yet know the outcome of this. But I, okay. I, I uh, time? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. I, I Thank want, you very I, much. I wanted you to finish that narrative. Okay, well, thank you. I, I appreciate but, but, yeah. Um, Happy to so, start. Thank you, Carol. Um, you know, you conveyed oh, so much both in the book and in your talk about the, the extraordinary difficulties. Um, and finally, I'd like to introduce Jill Adams. Jill is the executive director of If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice. In addition to her advocacy and her policy work, she has taught law, public health, and public policy students here at UC Berkeley. She is executive editor of Cases on Reproductive Rights and Justice, published in 2015, which is the first legal textbook on the subject. Welcome, Jill Adams. So thank you again for that introduction. Um, all of the work I present today and my very ability to be here are the results of the, pa the brilliance, passion, and devotion of all of my coworkers at If When How. For those who don't know us, we are the leading edge reproductive justice legal organization on the front lines representing people in crisis, reshaping laws, and making sound policies as we build a stronger progressive base of legal stakeholders connected to these issues and to one another. We work in service of the vision of reproductive justice set forth by Black, Indigenous, and women of color 25 years ago. We apply five modalities to put an end to five forms of reproductive oppression at the heart of our strategic initiatives. Our modalities are organizing, training, legal services, litigation, and policy advocacy. And our strategic initiatives aim to improve access to abortion for people who self-manage, young people, and public health insurance beneficiaries. We also strive to increase resources, dignity, and rights for birthing people and parents receiving public assistance. And we are a nationwide network of lawyers, activists, and law students with chapters now on 110 campuses throughout the country, including right here at Berkeley Law, uh, my beloved alma mater, home of the one and only Courage, and uh, site of one of our organization's flagship chapters, which I had the honor of co-founding in 2004. And as happy as I am here to be here with you all today, I cannot ignore the devastating backdrop of state violence against black people with impunity, a raging pandemic that showcases the structural racism in our systems and the tragically timed passing of a champion who leaves behind not just a hole on the bench, but a gaping chasm big enough for nearly all of our civil rights to fall through. The new vacancy on the, the Supreme Court imperils Roe v. Wade's already tenuous hold. Justice Ginsburg was a bulwark for the rights to equality, bodily autonomy, liberty, and dignity that form the nexus of reproductive rights. The court and the country need the next justice to honor these national values and guard against further incursions on our freedoms. However, if Judge Amy Coney Barrett is appointed, it's probable that the 6-3 anti-abortion majority on the Supreme Court will seize one of the next abortion rights cases winding its way up to the court as the chance they've been waiting for and what uh, Chief Justice Roberts signaled in, June, in his June medical con concurrence to overturn Roe or to decimate it to the point that states have carte blanche to restrict the right however they choose. 
In either of those scenarios, more people will need to self-manage their abortions outside the medical system. As we've observed throughout time and across countries, making abortion illegal doesn't end the need for it. And I understand that there are many questions, some confusion, and perhaps a little angst about people self-managing their abortions. I hope that after my remarks in this conversation, you'll feel more comfortable engaging in conversations about SMA, self-managed abortion, particularly because you'll know where to point people who need resources and support. And I hope you'll feel the same righteous rage we do about getting people locked behind bars, or about people getting locked behind bars for taking care of themselves and self-determining their reproductive lives. So today, we'll briefly cover self-managed abortion, including who does it, what they do, and why, how people get ensnared in the criminal system, what's different during the pandemic, and uh, close with just a few resources and opportunities to take action. So self-managed abortion occurs when someone ends their own pregnancy outside the medical system. Self-managed abortion is as old as pregnancy itself, and it can be safe and effective so long as people have access to accurate information, reliable methods, and confidential backup medical care in the rare event it's needed. What methods do people use to self-manage? Research shows that in approximately equal numbers, the majority are using herbs, vitamins, teas, or other botanical remedies, and abortion pills, the same ones Carol discussed, the same they would receive at a clinic, but purchased at pharmacies online or overseas, or from, former, uh, from foreign NGOs, and occasionally given to them by loved ones who may have the pills on hand. How common is self-managed abortion? Well, SMA is inherently difficult to document and track given the private nature of the practice. Nevertheless, some social scientists have conducted studies to better understand the phenomenon, including its prevalence. Dr. Abigail Aiken of the University of Texas studied requests for abortion pills from a foreign NGO called Aid Access, and some of those results are showcased here on the slide. The largest and most comprehensive study to date of SMA was headed by one of, uh, of Dr. Jaffe's um, colleagues, Dr. Daniel Grossman at UCSF and included a nationally representative sample of 7,000 women of reproductive age. The results indicated that approximately one in 10 abortions in the US is self-managed, one in 10. Some researchers believe SMA has been on the rise for a long time prior to the pandemic and partly responsible for the rapid decline in the clinical abortion rate the last few years. Why do people end their own pregnancies? Well, there are many, many reasons why people do so. I'm gonna highlight just a few. First, the most commonly cited reason is that people cannot afford clinic-based care. We just heard what it takes um, to, to reach a clinic and to get that kind of care. And so some of the barriers are you know, due to a lack of insurance coverage of abortion and all of the attendant costs of travel, childcare, overnight accommodations, and more. Clinic-based care is also inaccessible for some people due to mandatory waiting periods, parental notification requirements, or clinic protesters who may endanger patients by outing them to employers, family, or partners. Others may prefer community-based or self-sourced care because they distrust the medical system or wish to avoid repeating negative experiences they've had in the past, particularly related to their size, disability, race, HIV status, or gender expression. The ability to incorporate a spiritual or traditional practice may be important to someone, they may come from a country where self-managed abortion is the norm and therefore what's familiar and comfortable. And finally, people who've had prior experiences of pregnancy, miscarriage or abortion 
may feel they know their bodies well enough to take care of themselves and know when to seek help if needed. How safe is, uh, is self-managed abortion? Well, um, as we heard you know, care, uh, Dr. Jaffe discuss, medication abortion has an exceptionally high safety profile. The National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine published a report in 2018, excuse me, confirming this well-known fact. And data from years and years of self-administered abortion with pills in other countries demonstrate high safety and efficacy rates, particularly early in pregnancy. Complications are exceedingly rare, and the most common among them is that a person uh, remains pregnant, but that can usually be remedied through a second dose of medication. With the advent of abortion pills then, the primary risks of self-managed abortion in the US are not physical, they're legal. Contrary to outdated tropes about SMA, in 2020, it isn't coat hangers we have to fear, it's handcuffs. Tragically, throughout the United States, people have been investigated, arrested, and some even jailed for ending their own pregnancies. There've also been arrests of those supporting someone who ends their own pregnancy. And you may wonder how this can be. After all, the right to abortion is protected by the federal constitution and enjoys even greater protections under some state constitutions. Self-managing is within that right. Despite this, people who end their own pregnancies may risk unjustified arrest and imprisonment under a variety of misused laws. In purple, you can see the five states that have laws prohibiting self-managed abortion. And those laws are outdated and arguably unconstitutional. In the vast majority of states that don't have any laws addressing self-managed abortion, we see overzealous prosecutors misusing all sorts of other laws that were never intended to apply to a person who ends their own pregnancy. These prosecutors are criminalizing people, not according to what the law says, but in spite of what it doesn't say. The types of laws often misused include fetal harm laws that lack exemptions for the person carrying the fetus, pre-Roe v. Wade criminal abortion statutes, drug possession and other related laws, child abuse, abuse of a corpse, and antiquated throwbacks to the days when illegitimacy was a concern, such as concealment of a birth. As you can see, basically they throw in the whole kitchen sink. Courts reviewing such prosecutions have generally sided with the people who've ended their own pregnancies, um, dismissing these charges, but that hasn't stopped prosecutors who are politically motivated to punish people who have abortions. And criminalization of self-managed abortion, like all forms of criminalization in the US, affects some people more than others because of their identities, their circumstances, and where they live. First, criminalization is discriminatory. People who are already suspected, stigmatized, and surveilled more are more likely to be criminalized. Second, it's discretionary. The state actors who come into contact with people who have self-managed are often determined what happens next. Do the police view it as a crime? Do prosecutors think they should go after someone or want to find a way to do it? Do social workers think this is something they have to report to law enforcement? And finally, it's very circumstantial. Whereas one person may have the resources, buffer, trustworthy confidants, and the benefit of, of the doubt that keeps them from getting criminalized, another person may be exposed to law enforcement by someone they know, suspected by someone who, from whom they seek help, or surveilled because of their race, religion, source of income, and therefore more likely to get ensnared in the criminal systems net. And I wanna take a moment to be very clear that no state requires health facilities, healthcare providers, social workers, or anyone else to report a patient 
to law enforcement for having self-managed an abortion. And yet, in many of the known prosecutions, that's exactly how people have come to their attention. While investigating people who intentionally terminate pregnancies is an improper use of state power, these laws are also problematic because they're likely to result in the arrest and prosecution of people who suffer from spontaneous miscarriages. It's difficult, if not impossible, to discern the difference between a prompted and a spontaneous miscarriage. This baseline of uncertainty leaves prosecutors to grasp for criminal intent using factors such as a person's feelings of ambivalence about their pregnancy, previous visits to abortion clinics, and knowledge of their menstrual cycles. Arbitrary enforcement is a near certainty as law enforcement rely on stereotypes and stigma to discern, to discern innocent from, pregnant, or from guilty pregnancy losses. So to recap, when self-managed abortion is criminalized, it impacts A, people who ended their own pregnancies in, in places where no law prohibits it, B, mothers, partners, friends, and other loved ones who helped someone in their own pregnancy, and C, people who suffered pregnancy losses that were not intended. The surveillance of pregnant people's behavior will only worsen if self-managed abortion and pregnancy loss continue to be criminalized. Marginalized communities will suffer the most from this repression and suspicion. Immigrants, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, youth, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people, and low-income communities will be disproportionately impacted for a variety of reasons. First, these groups face higher barriers to clinical abortion care and have more motivations to opt for non-clinical care. Second, due to structural inequalities and disparities in healthcare access, members of these groups tend to have more adverse birth outcomes or pregnancy outcomes that would bring them under suspicion. Third, they tend to be forced into more interactions with government agents, whether they're social workers, uh, welfare officers, immigration officials, school officials, or police officers. And finally, it's been well documented that Medicaid participants are more likely to come to the attention of law enforcement for pregnancy-related issues, and Black, Indigenous, and people of color are many times more likely than our white people to be targeted for arrest and state violence. To limit arrests, we put information in people's hands through our confidential free helpline. They can call to learn about their legal rights regarding SMA. And if someone calls us who's been threatened with criminal investigation, been arrested or served a warrant, we provide representation, co-counseling or consultation with their attorney, or referrals and, and for advice and representation to our network of criminal defense attorneys. We've also been working to launch a legal defense fund to help defray the costs of bail, lawyers, experts, and more for people who've been unjustly criminalized for SMA. And during the, the, the health crisis, we've experienced an unprecedented number of helpline inquiries. The need for people to access abortion, including self-managed abortion, is, is likely to increase as long as the pandemic goes on. Pregnancies are likely to increase as people lose jobs, money, and health insurance, interfering with contraceptive access. Intimate partner violence is increasing. People are trapped in abusive relationships, facing both state-imposed and abuser-generated barriers. They're gonna need abortion care that is as discreet as possible. And clinic-based care is likely to become more limited, whether through state prohibitions on provision, like Dr. Joffrey mentioned, or through reduced clinic workforces. And also, getting access to pills has become more challenging as shipping and movement across borders is strained. 
So as a result, people may be delayed in self-managing or use methods that can expose them to greater risk of complications. As we have seen from the shameful efforts of abortion opponents to use this crisis as an opportunity to limit abortion access even further, we have no doubt that opponents will not hesitate to use the criminal system to strike out at people who need abortion care. And the authorities won't strike out at people uniformly. They'll target certain groups as usual. We're seeing the structural racism that plagues the criminal legal system being mirrored in the healthcare system, evidenced by the disparate risks and outcomes of COVID-19 for communities of color. It's unfortunately likely that in the midst of the health crisis, Black, Indigenous, and people of color who have unintended pregnancies are facing the triple threat of lacking access to trustworthy health care, needing to maintain social distance to stay safe from exposure, and being at greater risk of criminalization for self-directing their health care. This may all seem bleak, I know, uh, but rest assured, there are efforts underway to change things for the better. For one, we at How are coming at this injustice from every angle we can. Beyond the legal services I've described, we're also working on offensive and defensive sides of litigation and legislation. We're articulating novel theories in scholarship and case briefs. We're training law students and lawyers throughout the country and helping to shift the culture in ways that normalize and destigmatize self-managed abortion. And there are things you can do to help. So first, please sign our petition. The tiny URL is here. You can find it by searching change.org and self-managed abortion. Please also share it with your networks. And law students, when you graduate, you can sign our lawyer's letter, advocate for a resolution by the American Bar Association, and join our RJ Lawyers Network to volunteer your time and talents to this cause. We welcome all of you. And finally, another thing we can all do is fiercely hold a vision of a better future far beyond this moment, beyond this mess, when all people can access the resources and exercise the rights they need to thrive. When it comes to the future of abortion care, let us collectively envision and realize the day when people have access to the full array of abortion options and can choose which is right for them. The real agency, um, not the constrained agency within a, 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 a context lacking agency, that Professor Bridges discussed. Because everyone deserves to self-determine their reproductive lives free from discrimination, coercion, and violence. Thank you. Jill, thank you very much. That was, um, it, it, I, I think that, you know, the, the questions you raise uh, get, have, have had very little or relatively less uh, uh, public, uh, uh, you know, knowledge, and, and I think it's extraordinary the work you're doing there. Um, at this point, we're going to get to questions from, from our viewers, but I, I'd first like to have the panel talk among yourselves and ask, you know, questions of, of one another, and, and maybe I, I, I can begin that myself. Um, and and I, I'm struck as I said, it's the morning after the first debate, and, and uh, in that debate, um, there was a shout out. Uh, President Trump shouted out to the Proud Boys. Um, we are living in a moment when uh, the, the fact and the threat of militia violence is at a level we haven't seen before. One notes that 
violence around abortion, which was uh, uh, seemed to have been at a much greater level years ago, it is is not something that's talked about a lot. In the in this atmosphere where militias are now, um, you know, uh, taking taking their marching orders from from high in the government, <laughs> from the president. Uh, is there any threat or, or, or of, of uh, renewed violence around uh, abortion, which is in any way related to um, the rise of the militias? Um, I, I can speak to that. Um, right after Trump uh, got elected in 2016, abortion clinics... Um, reported an increase in harassment, vandalism, threats. I mean, the same stuff they've always had, but more so. I think part of the reason we don't hear too much about it is because it's become so normalized. Um, in the old days, when abortion first started, you know, a, a firebombing of a clinic or vandalism, you know, that was newsworthy. Now, I mean, the ante has been raised so much, if someone isn't shot, and the thing, Fortunately, we haven't had an actual killing uh, since 2013, if I'm remembering correctly, in, in Colorado Springs. But, but yes, um, there's, all, there's all, always threats to abortion providers. Uh, let me just give you one very quick, bizarre example uh, of the times. Um, in North Carolina, a, a clinic in Charlotte, which has been, you know, uh, par particularly targeted by aunties for years, um, uh, a, a protester came up to an elderly volunteer who was standing outside the clinic, uh, and and she, the protester was the she, coughed on the gentleman and said, uh, "Ha ha, I have COVID." <laughs> I don't know if she really had COVID, and I don't know. I never heard what happened, but um, the, the the protesters are always there. Um, they're, they're now swarming over the parking lot. A lot of clinics now are having patients wait in their cars in the parking lot. Escorts, for the most part, not there because of COVID. The antis are there. Uh, they're swarming all over the parking lot. They are not practicing social distancing. So yes, um, the threat of violence is always there. Okay. Um, it, and are there are there things that I, any of you would like to ask one another? If not, I, I'm 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 intrigued by so much of the of of, of what was said. Uh, I, I'm curious if uh, you know uh, Jill referred to legal theories and and uh, in the in the upcoming presumably the upcoming battle to save or undo Roe v. Wade, we're going to get perhaps, and I don't know this, perhaps novel theories for undoing Roe v. Wade and what theories are, are people who uh, are pro-abortion developing to, um, to contrast that, I, I, you know, and on, on the side of that, I was struck by the argument, the, the, the Clarence Target Thomas argument actually making it into a Supreme Court uh, decision talking about eugenics. And is that a possible 
uh, way into the novel legal theory, which 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 may be adduced for um, taking down Roe v. Wave in the Supreme Court that 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 is in our future. I can start off uh, by answering that question. So these reasons-based abortion bans, uh, abortion bans that attempt to police people's reasons for terminating a pregnancy, prohibiting um, uh, abortions that are motivated on account of the uh, disability status of the fetus or the fetus's race or sex. Um, these are definitely novel um, <laughs> interventions into um, the, the conversation. Um, so typically, uh, abortion regulations have taken the form, especially since Planned Parenthood versus Casey has taken the form of trap laws. So these targeted regulation of abortion providers, um, these were the laws that were at issue in whole, um, whole women's health um, and then June Medical. So these were laws that sought to close clinics essentially um, by, by um, making it impossible essentially for persons who perform abortions to uh, be permitted to perform abortions because they needed admitting privileges. And also it made it incredibly expensive for uh, abortion providers, um, the facilities uh, to um, be, meet the requirements of the law. So they had to become ambulatory um, care centers. So this was kind of the approach that uh, anti-abortion laws were taking. It was like trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers. Before this sort of wave of laws, we saw restrictions on abortion take the form of informed consent provisions. And so, you know, um, my favorite, which means it's my worst, um, is uh, South Dakota, uh, which required, you know, uh, providers to tell a person terminating a pregnancy as part of the informed consent process that abortion was terminating the life of a whole separate, unique living human being. Um, and so these were like uh, um, efforts to convince pregnant people that their fetuses were essentially tiny babies and therefore that abortion is murder. Um, and then other sort of uh, regulations of the informed consent process um, took the form of ultrasound viewing laws. So you had to be given the opportunity to view your ultrasound. And so those were, so informed consent laws as well as trap laws were kind of the forms that abortion regulations um, were taking. Um, these reasons-based abortion bans, they're just new, they're novel. And you know, I have to give it up to the creativity of the, of the anti-abortion folks, like their creativity is endless. And what um, uh, reasons-based abortion bans do would be to chip away at Casey's holding. Casey says that there is, it is impermissible to have a categorical ban on abortion mm -hmm. prior to viability. It was very clearly laid out in Casey that a categorical ban um, is impermissible. What reasons-based abortion bans do is erect a categorical ban prior to viability if people are trying to terminate abortions for particular reasons. Um, and so um, if these bans are upheld, which you know, Thomas clearly signaled that he was very amenable to it. And I also should note that before Boxy Planned Parenthood got to the Supreme Court, it went through the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit um, set on banc to review um, or to, to sort of suss out the constitutionality of the laws. There were several judges in dissent, um, including Frank Easterbrook, um, who found the, the legal argument um, that defending the constitutionality of these of these bans, he found it persuasive. So 
if these bans are upheld and it's, it's, look, it's, looking, <laughs> it's looking possible um, that the Supreme Court will review the constitutionality of the bans um, at some point, um, then they will definitely represent um, a solid attack on Casey. But I should also note that these are incremental. These are the, all, all of these laws are, so trap laws, um, informed consent regulations, all of these are sort of incremental steps to overturning Roe v. Wade. I believe that if uh, the Supreme Court has a solid majority, a 6-3 um, conservative majority, majority of folks who have articulated their, will, their skepticism of Roe v. Wade and their willingness to overturn, that incremental steps will no longer be necessary. It'll be a straight on attack on, on, on Roe v. Wade and then we'll leave it to the court to either overturn it altogether or to um, you know, strip it so you know greatly that it's it's essentially rational basis review we'll be left with so oh, larry if i may i, yes, I want to just please. uh agreed with everything professor bridges said and um i want to lift up a piece from my colleague farah diaz teo in the most recent american bar association publication where she's she's looking at this subject and she's tying together the current state of roe and the very eviscerated 14th Amendment due process clause interpretation, the undue burden status or undue, undue burden standard rather, um, and what that means when you look at it through the lens of the criminalization of pregnant people for various acts, including self-managed abortion. Um, so I, I highly recommend that reading. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, let me, let me uh, move on to some questions from the viewers. Um, and we have one that I'm going to combine a couple. Uh, the first one asks in general, in a general way, issues that, that have been covered a lot. But assuming that the president gets his way <clears throat> and his nominee for the Supreme Court uh, is, placed on, is placed on the high court and the court rolls back Roe v. Wade, what would be the recourse of American people to be able to exercise their rights to make their own decisions regarding reproductive rights at that point. And I would add to that, by reversing Roe v. Wade, does the court or will the court take into consideration those unwanted pregnancies, the children of those unwanted pregnancies who will still have to be financially cared for and who, and who will take on that responsibility? Basically, what would be, you know, what would be people's recourse? Well, there are state protections. Um, there are, you know, some state constitutions. The federal constitution provides a floor, and state constitutions can go above that for added rights and protections for their residents. And um, many states do, in fact, protect uh, reproductive rights beyond what the federal constitution does. So that's one. Um, again, as I just talked about extensively, people are taking, you know, matters into their own hands and reclaiming agency and communities are caring for one another. It's already happening. And that's because I think it's important as much as we want Roe to remain intact, we have to acknowledge that it hasn't been enough for decades in order for legions of people in this country to be able to actually exercise the rights that are enshrined in it. And that's because of all of the restrictions that have been put in place, some of them almost immediately after the case came down. And one in particular I want to highlight is the Hyde Amendment, 
which is um, a, a federal congressional uh, action taken every year during the budget approval process, wherein they prohibit federal Medicaid um, from covering nearly all abortions. And about 35 states actually follow suit with their own state Medicaid plans. That means that people uh, living in poverty and low-income people are forced to pay out of pocket for, again, the services plus all of the attendant costs, which can be prohibitively expensive um, for people whose incomes are low enough to qualify for Medicaid. And that's just one example of, um, of, of the situation um, and why, yes, we want to we want to retain Roe and we want to uh, build upon Roe and we can go beyond the Fourteenth Amendment due process clause to do that because the the right to you know for example um, bodily autonomy and medical decision making uh, equal dignity which was something that you know Justice Ginsburg wrote about and that also came out through Obergefell um, with the marriage equality case. Um, for, you know, there are elements where, you know, of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment that we could explore, and where reproductive rights live within those protections as well. So we want Roe to remain, and it's already insufficient to cover everyone's needs, and there are other ways to, to um, shore up protections as well. Uh, and if I can just answer, thank you, Joe. If I can just answer the Please. second part of that question uh, in one word. I mean, the questioner asked, you know, will the children who, who are born because they're, they're, you know, there was not able, they're, they're, the, the woman was not able to get an abortion. One word, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, the, uh, there's a saying you hear frequently in pro-choice circles. It's attributed to former Congressman Barney Frank, um, you know, uh, for the anti-abortion movement, life begins at conception and ends at birth. I mean, a, a lot of social scientists have done studies, you know, correlating the voting records of so-called pro-life politicians and their records on, you know, social provision, you know, uh, uh, social welfare programs, you know, and it's, it's disjointed. So the, the simple answer is no unfortunately. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me move on then. Uh, we have a question that brings up uh, the, the discussion of telemedicine. And the questioner asks, telemedicine is a great idea, <clears throat> but the U.S. has a huge digital divide. And again, poor rural women are the ones most likely not to have high-speed internet access. How do we account, or how do we make sure we account for this issue when um, advocating for abortion health um, uh, practices? Um, I, I note that this question is from my beloved colleague, Natalia Deep Sosa, who's a sociologist at Davis. And Natalia, you're right. Um, uh, that, that is a real problem. Um, again, again, bracketing COVID pre, you know, pre-COVID, some of the local abortion funds here can be very helpful, even if you don't have 
abortion, excuse me, even if you don't have internet access yourself, uh, a fund can help you get what you need. You can come in, use their, their, uh, you know, their internet. Uh, So there are institutions in place that have tried to address this. I mean, there's some, you know, if we really had time to go into it, some of the abortion access funds in the South in particular are extraordinary. I mean, they've expanded abortion care to reproductive justice more broadly, help people with a variety of of things um, in Mississippi and Alabama in particular. Um, But COVID, of course, um, makes all this more complicated. Okay, Um, let me move on a bit. Um, We have the question, doesn't the language of quote-unquote reproductive justice capture Oops, uh, dear, I've hit the wrong button. Um, there we go. Doesn't it capture the institutional and systemic racism experienced by women of color, as well as the poverty and lack of comprehensive sex education that might create the conditions for unwanted pregnancies? And this has been addressed, but, but um, I think the question is, is, uh, is important. So... Who, who can somebody respond to that? Um, I can take this one on. So um, absolutely, reproductive justice is a framework um, that um, was um, first articulated in the 1990s by feminists of color. Um, and their um, intervention um, as, and during that time was to um, note that the language of reproductive rights failed to capture the multiplicity of things that make rights meaningless. And so we've been, we had been fighting for formal rights, right? The formal right to an abortion, Um, but one's race, one's class, one's disability, um, one's immigration status, one's age made it very difficult, if not impossible, to secure the reproductive rights that, um, and I should note that the folks who have been though the primary um, advocates for reproductive rights, the energies um, that were spent were from white feminists. Um, And so they were concerned about the issues that affected them. And the issue that affected them was that the states were making it difficult for them to access an abortion in the market. Um, So abortion rights essentially prohibit the state from um, making it impossible for people to buy the services that they needed in the market. So reproductive justice framework comes along and says that's super awesome if you have um, the funds with which to pay for abortion services in the market. But if you're indigent, um, if you live in a rural communities where even if you had the money, um, the, the facility is so far away from you that it sort of triples, quadruples um, the expense of an abortion, right? Abortion rights become meaningless when we sort of consider how other, people, uh, other axes of identity like race, like class, like disability status um, intersect. Um, the other thing, the other intervention of the reproductive justice framework was to um, broaden the universe of concerns. <laughs> so again, the, the concerns that motivated um, class privileged white women was that the only sort of reproductive oppression that they were experiencing was their inability to purchase these abortion services in the market. However, when you did not have class privilege, when you do not have race privilege, when you don't have Im- privilege of immigration status, um, 
those are, that's not the universe of reproductive oppression. Um, so it wasn't just the inability to not have a kid, but it was also the ability to have a kid. <laughs> um, forced sterilizations are happening today, right? We just discovered um, mm -hmm. that in ICE detention centers, that coercive sterilization is still going on, right? So it's not just people were, are being, people without privilege are just being denied the ability to not become um, parents, rather they're being denied the ability to become parents. And then of course they're being denied the ability to parent the children that they have, right? So again, let's go to the border and look at how we're separating families. Um, removing a child from the, the parent's custody um, is not just taking place at the border, but it's also taking place within the family regulation system and then the child welfare system, right? These are the issues that impact folks without class privilege and race privilege. And that's what the reproductive justice framework um, intervened into the language of reproductive rights to center. That being said, to get to the question, does the reproductive justice framework um, capture the systemic and institutional racism um, that produces um, higher rates of, of um, unintended pregnancies among Black folks? Absolutely. The reproductive justice framework is the best framework for um, capturing institutional and structural racism. It's necessary to name it, though. It doesn't happen automatically, right? And so the, the um, point of my talk today was to name institutional and structural racism as, as, the, mm -hmm. as the forces that lead to these um, statistics that we see across the nation. And also the point of my intervention today was to say, um, was in response to, I would say, the celebratory mode <laughs> that um, some um, uh, supporters of abortion rights have taken to um, defending abortion rights for those without privilege. I think we ought to celebrate the fact that, folk can't, that folks can use a tool to navigate these constraints, but I also think it's incredibly important to name the constraints, um, to acknowledge the constraints, and to specifically name them as structural racism. Um, and that was the, the offer that yeah. I made today. <laughs> Great, okay. I have a question um, uh, addressed to Jill. Uh, which asks, you demonstrate how efforts to stop women from doing the so-called harm of self-managed abortion. Um, state officials do harm through criminalizing pregnant women. I wonder if you're thinking about your work through a construction of harm framework. It certainly comes up in discussions. And I think, you know, the idea of... Um, harm reduction is popular, particularly in other countries and in international contexts, where we certainly draw um, lessons uh, from um, in advocacy, lessons in service delivery, in the self-managed abortion realm in particular. And I do know there are, um, you know, f physicians who've been operating in Peru in particular, um, who have gone into some extra legal space by answering to a higher moral authority than the law in order to make sure that people have what they need to take care of themselves and in pregnancies if they, um, if they need to. And that is very much under a harm reduction lens. Um, but it's an, it's, it's an issue of live discussion because I think different people, as maybe this is sort of the premise of the question, right? Different people have different um, attitudes toward what constitutes harm and where is the harm. And we at Ifwin Howe um, very much relate to everything that Professor Bridges just said. Where do we assign harm? Harm is not 
in an individual circumstance or one person's you know decision making or how that gets affected the greatest harms are wrought by the on a structural level they're happening at an institutional and a systemic level the the systems are what perpetuate the inequity and what limit people's opportunity and then rob them of dignity as they're just trying to live their lives and so that's where we think the greatest harm is or as the person asking the question um, named, you know, the, the system criminalizing people, that's what's harmful. Um, but it's, it's all the other circumstances as well. So to, again, to underscore so much of what um, Professor Bridges just said, it's a person having an unintended pregnancy um, is not in and of itself a harm. Abortion is not in and of itself a harm. Self-managed abortion is not in and of itself a harm. What's but it's also not necessarily an act of pure empowerment in any of those cases or real volition because, you know, you can take, for example, somebody who discovers that they're pregnant and maybe they want to have that pregnancy and they're a person who relies on cash assistance and they discover in their state that there's a welfare family cap and they already have someone in their family who's receiving aid. And so if they were to carry this child, this pregnancy to term and have a child, that child would be rendered ineligible for aid. And they know that they can't possibly take care of a family, a larger family on the same, you know, very small amount of funding. And so maybe they reluctantly decide, okay, well, then I'm going to have to terminate this pregnancy. And they seek out care. And maybe they run into a parental, a forced parental notification requirement that adds extra obstacles for them. Or maybe they discover that they live in a state who, um, where the state Medicaid program doesn't cover abortion care. So then they've got to figure out how to pay for this out of pocket. And, you know, they go through all the trials and tribulations to try to save the money, make the money, pull it together. And by that time, they, you know, they find out that their state is one of these that, you know, my co-presenters have mentioned where there's a gestational ban and it's too late and they've got to go out of state. And I mean, you can just add on, add on. And then at that point, you know, they're, they're, left with very little recourse, but to, um, to, to take care, you know, to take care of the matter themselves. And to be clear, most people are self-managing early in pregnancy, safely, effectively, privately, we never hear about it. But if things have progressed to a different, you know, uh, to, a, to a later stage in pregnancy and they attempt to self-manage an abortion and there's a, 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 a medical complication, well, then they end up maybe having to seek emergency medical care and then somebody decides to call the cops on them and then they get hauled off and they go to jail and they're taken away from their kids and then maybe they lose their, their parental rights um, and, and on and on and on. Like this is the reality of people needing and trying to get the abortions they need in 2020 in the United States. Um, and so is where does harm come in? everywhere. Um, and so are we all trying to reduce harm? You bet we are. Okay. Um, let me, I think we, we, we have run into our um, uh, time limit. So I want to, um, there are a couple of questions, but I'm afraid we're going to have to let them go. Um, one of them though, we have two minutes. And so we're, gonna, we're going to ask you to be very brief to a question which doesn't um, attract brevity, but here we go. Um, how do we make systemic change 
to the system of care, in particular to abortion care, so that it is more humane, inclusive, and affordable? What can each one of us start doing today? And we have two minutes. let me take 40 seconds of that two minutes to share equally. And this is a very lame answer to an extremely complicated question. And it, I, I confess the lameness. Voting is crucial, especially for those of you in, on this call who are not Californians, where we know Biden will win. As scary as the Supreme Court is, a Biden administration will make a difference who becomes the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Population Affairs, who becomes the Commissioner of the FDA, who becomes the head of CDC. All these bureaucratic posts bear directly uh, on abortion care and what's permissible and what's not. So as terrifying as the court is, a Biden administration can do things through executive orders that can make a difference. Okay. Uh I will, I will build on um, Dr. Jaffe's point by just saying, and if we do secure a Biden-Harris uh, victory, that's just the beginning. Um, we, we have just, we now have the opportunity to do the work that we need to do to, to produce a humane society. We don't have the opportunity right now. <laughs> um, but if there is a Biden-Harris victory, we now have the conditions of possibility for doing the work. The Hyde Amendment still exists. Um, there is no funding, federal funding for abortion, even in cases that will maim a pregnant person. And that applies to Medicaid, but also to Indian Health Services. So indigenous people are being coerced into parenthood. Um, I would go on and on, but I also want to mention that family caps exist. Um, uh, um, Jill mentioned family caps. The, the freezing of the size of a family, of an indigent family's threat is supposed to act to disincentivize um, uh, childbearing. Those exist in, I think, 16 states right now. We have to repeal those. But also, we have to stop separating families. The child welfare system, the family regulation system, is a system of violence. Um, and in a Biden-Harris you know, administration, um, we ought to turn our attention to uh, creating systems of support, not systems of punishment for indigent people who need help. So that's just two, two three other things I wanted to add to the conversation. Uh, I'll say pass the Breathe Act. Pass the Each Woman Act, get rid of Hyde, and overturn Harris versus McGray, the Supreme Court case that upholds it. Decriminalize self-managed abortion. Improve young people's access to abortion care. Ensure birth justice for all people and abolish welfare family caps. That's a start. Marvelous, and that's a finish. Um, the, the, um, <laughs> your answers to this vast question briefly are, are pretty amazing, but all of the presentations have been extraordinary today, and I, I want to thank you all for doing this. I want to thank whoever, uh, you know, our, our viewers, and, um, and both from me personally and on behalf of the Center for, for Right-Wing Studies at UC Berkeley. Thank you. Good afternoon to everybody. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.